The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. Changes. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Welcome to the Beyond 2022 Research Showcase. Unlocking the Archives. Uh, Next Generation Access. A special welcome uh, to everybody who is joining us in the Zoom room um, and on Facebook. We're live streaming, of course. Um, There's a fabulous, fabulous audience uh, from across Ireland, Europe, uh, the United Kingdom, the US and much further afield. So you're all very, very welcome indeed. My name is Jane Olmeyer and I am the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is our research institute in the arts and humanities. And in the hub, we do three things. The first thing we do is celebrate the excellence of the arts and humanities at Trinity. The second thing we do is promote conversations across disciplines, because that's where the magic happens. And we're really going to see that this evening. The third thing is we uh, run a very vibrant public humanities programme. We believe it's so important to bring the insights of the arts and humanities to the widest possible uh, audiences. Now, I say all of this for the last time tonight because this is my last event as the director of the Hub. Uh, Tomorrow, the wonderful Eve Patton will take over. But I can't think of a better event on which to go out. Um, uh, uh, The Hub is so delighted to be collaborating uh, with the Beyond uh, uh, 2022 team. In fact, this is the second of two events today marking the anniversary of the terrible fire of 1922, which occurred uh, 98 years ago at the Four Courts in Dublin. At lunchtime today, the Beyond 2022 team and its international partners presented a showcase of their research taking uh, them from the fragmentary records saved from the flames of 1922 to the technological underpinnings of the project uh, with the Beyond 2022 knowledge graph. It was a fabulous, fabulous session. If you haven't seen it, do listen uh, to uh, the recording. It was magical. And we're in for a treat this evening, because this evening we've invited two very distinguished speakers to respond to the Beyond 2022 project and reflect on the issues of public access, commemoration and historical memory that are raised by the Beyond 2022 project. We will hear recovering the memory of uh, 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 the Four Courts Blaze and how archives can respond creatively to the challenge of commemoration within Ireland's decade of centenaries. Now we're running a poll tonight um, and it's going to appear in just a moment uh, on your screen. Um, And we are asking you to give us your opinion, in your opinion, which one of the following events in 1922 was the most significant for Irish history? Was it? And then they're all listed. So the first up is that uh, uh, Doyle Aaron ratifies the Anglo-Irish uh, Treaty and the anti-treaty members uh, withdraw. The second thing is uh, the uh, Four Courts uh, fire on the 30th of June, 1922. Then we have the death of Arthur Griffith on the uh, 12th of August. We have the death of Michael Collins on the 22nd of August. 
and then we have uh, uh, the establishment of the uh, free state, it's 26 counties, on the 6th of December. So we'd like you to click which one you think is uh, most uh, uh, significant for Irish history and we're going to be coming uh, back to that. You'll get the results of that poll after Guy Biner's uh, lecture and when you hear what Guy has to say you'll understand uh, uh, why we, we've asked you that. So just a minute, uh, for just a minute, I'd like to say a little bit about uh, Beyond uh, 2022. It was established in 2016 with uh, competitive research funding from the Irish Research Council. I chair that body and um, uh, it was a fabulous uh, project in which to uh, develop a pilot. And the concept was uh, launched uh, by the late Shay Lawless and Peter Crooks uh, in the Long Room Hub on February uh, 2018. And this project really stands uh, as such an important tribute to the memory of Shay, who we lost um, a year ago uh, on, on Mount Everest. We were delighted when phase two of the Beyond 2022 uh, project received two and a half million euro from the Irish government under uh, Project Ireland 2040. And that was announced in Dublin Castle last December by our then Taoiseach Leo Bradker. We are very grateful for the support of the outgoing Minister for Culture, Josefa Madigan and her officials in the Department of Culture, Heritage and the Gaeltacht, and we look forward to working closely with the new Minister, uh, Catherine Martin. We're also very appreciative of the ongoing support of uh, the Taoiseach's office and the Taunashta's office in this ambitious and collaborative enterprise. We'd like to welcome uh, here this evening the Chancellor of the University of Indiana, Dr. Bill Lowe, and acknowledge his support in furthering the research showcase this uh, afternoon, really. We'd also like to thank the Beyond 2022 partners and participating institutions, many of whom are listening in from around the world. Uh, the Beyond 2022 website now has material digitally donated from the uh, uh, Houghton Library in Harvard, the Free Company of Philadelphia, as well as many archives and libraries closer to home. And you're invited to explore these on the Beyond 22 uh, uh, website. Uh, anyway, it'll whet your appetite for further materials that are going to be released uh, through the platform over the next uh, few years. So before I introduce our three fabulous speakers, I just want to say a word about the format of the evening. Um, we really want this to be as interactive as possible. So we would like you to ask your questions using the Q&A um, uh, feature, which is at the bottom uh, of your uh, screens if you're in Zoom. And if you're on Facebook, we'll try and also uh, uh, take your uh, questions. I'd like to just remind you that we're recording um, our uh, wonderful discussion this evening, partly because we want to share it again. We would love you to join us on social media. Um, please uh, tweet as much as you uh, are uh, in the mood to do so. It would be nice to trend tonight. Uh, I'm always hoping to, that we can trend with a, 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 such a, an important topic as this. The handles are in the uh, chat function. Now, I'm going to introduce our three speakers uh, separately um, as they uh, prepare to speak. And before um, uh, uh, we have a little video of uh, the uh, project, I do want to say a few words about my 
extremely distinguished uh, colleague, Peter Crooks. He's a fabulous medieval historian, but really um, the vision for this project um, was very much Peter's and, as I say, the late Shay Lawless's and the leadership that he has shown over the course of the past decade in this space is inspiring. And Peter, again, to congratulate you on everything that you have done and continue to do in this amazing project. Uh, we're going to turn to Peter, though, but before we do that, uh, we're going to have an overview of the Beyond 2022 project uh, and uh, introduce the, the showcase. Uh, I mean, there's a little video, it's the world premiere of uh, a, a wonderful uh, introduction uh, to the project. So, Jane, if I, sorry, if, please. I, if, if I may, I'll come in and then we'll play the video. Oh, is um, that sorry, Peter? I beg your pardon. Beg but yeah, then, yeah. listen, over to you. Thank you very much indeed, and uh, thank you for those very generous remarks. and. For me, it's an honour actually to share the panel with uh, Professor Guy Biner and Orla McBride. So thank you to uh, you for joining us today. Um, as Jane says, today really is a milestone. Uh, we're uh, so appreciative, as always, for the support of the of the government um, that's been shown for this project and for the uh, generosity of other supporters. Um, it's wonderful that um, Chancellor uh, Bill Lowe uh, could join us this evening uh, and I thank him and Pamela Lowe I, and also for the support of Anonymous Foundation and the support of the Trinity Trust, all of whom together have enabled us to further the research uh, that we showcased at lunchtime today. But the 30th of June 2020, this date that we have reached means just in terms of project management, uh, a rather nerve-wracking fact, we are now only two years away from the centenary of the Forecourt's fire. Time moves fast. And if you think about how fast time moves, on the evening of the 30th of June, 98 years ago, the collection in the record treasury at the Four Courts had already been lost by the time we're talking 98 years ago. The fire raged and it consumed seven centuries worth of records all in that single afternoon. But I want to actually begin not by imagining June uh, 30th, and the fire, but rather with the rubble afterwards, the return in particular of Mr. Herbert Wood to the archive a fortnight or so later. Who was Herbert Wood, you will ask? Well, Herbert Wood was uh, the deputy keeper of the records in 1922. He's become one of my closest collaborators. He was sort of the archivist in chief and the author of the now famous Guide to the Public Records published only three years before the fire in 1919. And two, year, two weeks rather after the fire, Herbert Wood was allowed to return to the Forecourts complex and survey the losses. And we have this extraordinary description, which I'm going to read to you now. It's not actually titled in the Deputy Keeper's Report, but there is this wonderful phrase within the description, it's, which is the visit, the visit of Mr. Wood and other officials to the office about the beginning of July 1922. So this is a quotation. It runs, although the fire did not extend to the record house, the record house is actually now the Court of Appeal, it's at the Liffey end of the complex, at the front of the repository. So the fire did not extend to the record house. Um, uh, the, the record house presented to Mr. Wood upon his visit, a scene not easy now to imagine. The search room, 
which was where the readers conducted their uh, research, the search room and the other rooms on the ground floor of the record house were piled high with debris. Intermingled with the furniture were volumes of will books, of chancery order books, as well as office files and correspondence. The presses on the Church Street side suffered most, and in particular, those containing the calendars to the collections transferred from the Record Tower in Dublin Castle. So these were their guides to the collections in the repository. Out of the debris were picked calendars and indexes, and fragments of calendars and indexes. Scattered pages of the calendars were found all over the building. The presence of explosive substances rendered the work of salvage dangerous, and the reality of the danger was proved by a miniature explosion which took place some time afterwards in the strong room. All of that's a quotation. Now the strong room, just to explain, the strong room was just beside the search room. So you'd be reading in the reading room and just beside it is a strong room, had barred windows on the outside, so for safekeeping, it was adjacent to the search room. The idea was you came to read, if you were to return the next day, they would keep the records there overnight uh, so you could consult them the next morning. And some of the records that Zoe Reed, the conservator from the National Archives, those captivating records that she showed us this afternoon, almost certainly were held in the strong room at Easter 1922, and that is how they survived to us. That is where that miniature explosion occurred after the main fire had destroyed the rest of the repository. So that's what we're dealing with. Now my point here, maybe a little bit mischievous, but my point is, this is actually the good news story of June 30th, 1922. This is the bit of the building that survived. The rest of the building is gutted. And doubtless when Mr. Wood visits, the first reaction of him and his staff upon entering the record house must have been a terrible psychological blow at what had been lost. But it's the second impulse that I'm interested in. They immediately begin to pick up the scattered fragments, to bundle them in brown paper for Zoe Reed to open 95 years later, to label them for safekeeping so he would know what they were, to reassemble the scattered pages and rebind the volumes of calendars and indexes, to slowly return chaos to order. And those solved records, those calendars and indexes, they are now a primary means by which we can recover the structure and the content of the records that were burned in the great fire in the building behind, the wonderful record treasury that held the full collection. So to that extent, our enterprise now, in the coming two years from now until the centenary, is a, a, a continuation, it's in the spirit of that first response to the fire. And so it's really an enormous honor for me, I always feel this, to be permitted. I'm not sure who thought it was a good idea that I would be permitted to direct this project, but I've been allowed to do so, and it's a huge honor for me to do so. And I'm so grateful always for the support of our archival partners, and I'll name them now, the National Archives of Ireland, of course, the successor institution to the Public Record Office, but with the NAI, the National Archives of the UK, the Public Record Office of the Northern Ireland, those three genetically linked public record offices. The Irish Manuscripts Commission, established in 1928 precisely to continue the work of recovery and the library of my own institution, Trinity College Dublin. This collaboration 
in phase one of the project uh, established, as Jane said, with Irish Research Council uh, funding, that collaboration really was what I was most proud of. The trust that exists between ourselves in the project and the archives is the foundation of everything else. The project can't exist without that archival support. But along with collaboration beyond 2022, I think has become uh, an enterprise uh, with two other things always in mind. It's about collaboration, as I've said. It's also about connection and communication. Connection uh, in the sense of connecting digital archives together in the way that we were uh, experiencing with the extraordinary computer science that we saw at the research showcase at lunchtime underpinning the whole project. And communication in the sense of bringing the research back to broader publics. Beyond 2022 is based on a guiding principle of democratizing access to a lost national memory. And I think that's a wonderful principle. I'm very happy to be able to acknowledge the contribution of the expert advisory group on centenary commemorations in endorsing this as a guiding principle for a legacy project to emerge from the decade of centenaries. So with that in mind, I'll return now to the visit of Herbert Wood. But imagine now instead, not his return to the Four Courts in July 1922, but imagine him returning in two years time. Because today what we are revealing for the first time is the search room, but imagined as a virtual reality space. I have to say, I love that it was called the search room back in 1922 and search and information retrieval is of course what we do now with computing. Um, that task of information retrieval in a virtual reality environment lies at the heart of the computer science challenge that my wonderful colleagues in the ADAPT Centre, uh, the colleagues of um, my late friend Shay Lawless, uh, have taken on as their special contribution to this project. And with their help, Unlike the visit of Herbert Wood to the office in July 1922, in two years time, what you will be greeted with is not debris and masonry rubbish and scattered paper, but an entirely novel way to explore, to connect and to discover a recovered Irish past. So I hope you enjoy this glimpse of where collaboratively we hope to take this project across the coming years. And I'll ask Francesca now to uh, show us this animatic uh, to mark the 98th anniversary of the Four Courts fire. Thank you very much. Dublin, June 30th, 1922. Day three of the Battle of the Four Courts, the opening engagement of the Irish Civil War. Shortly after noon, the city is shaken by a huge explosion. After the blast, fire takes hold and plumes of white smoke are seen billowing from an arcade of tall windows in a corner of the Four Courts complex. This is the record treasury of Ireland's public record office. Irish history, dating back over 700 years, is on fire. Inside the record treasury, the intense heat melts the high ironwork galleries and shelving, casting paper and parchment records into the flames below. Miraculously, one part of the building survives almost intact, except for a blast hole in the side wall. The record house, and at its heart, the handsome search room where researchers pored over historical documents had escaped the worst of the damage. 
Now supported by the Government of Ireland, the Beyond 2022 project is reconstructing the search room in virtual reality. Here, readers in 1922 conducted their research beneath the natural light of a beautiful glazed ceiling. And for the first time in a century, we can reopen the double doors that led to the record treasury, passing through the fire break, which stopped the blaze spreading to the front of the building. On the centenary of the fire, four steps will take you on your journey through Ireland's virtual record treasury. Explore, locate, connect, discover. Entering through the record house, you can admire its elegant staircase before passing into the search room where your discoveries begin. From here, you can search the archive and travel to the very place in the lofty galleries of the treasury where the records destroyed in 1922 have been reassembled from surviving copies and transcripts located in archives across Ireland and around the world. Now, next-generation technology enables you to visualize the whole archive and make connections in ways that were unimaginable a century ago. Returning to the search room, you can discover more about the people, places and topics contained in the documents. Beyond 2022, unlocking the story of Ireland and its peoples across seven centuries and reopening a lost archive to new generations with new questions. Thank you. What you're doing is just so exciting um, and hugely inspiring. And you can see its interdisciplinarity at its very, very best. And obviously, we'll get to hear more about that as we uh, progress through the evening. But what a great video. Thank you. Uh, and I'm going to turn now uh, uh, to uh, Orla McBride. And Orla, it's so lovely to welcome you here this evening as the new director of the National Archives of Ireland. As Peter said a moment ago, there are a number of key archives, the National Library of Ireland, obviously the National Archives in the, in the UK, in London, and then the Public Record Office of Northern Ireland. And I think one thing we were all just delighted by was it's the first time the three archives have collaborated together and I think as we enter the post-Brexit world I'm almost sorry to say that world uh, that word uh, we've sort of all forgotten about Brexit but actually it's the soft power of cultural diplomacy as our librarian Helen Shenton loves to to, to say um, uh, so it's lovely that you're with us this evening and Orla you succeeded John McDonough as the director of the National Archives uh, in April so you're obviously coming to it uh, with a fresh uh, set of eyes, which is wonderful, because before that you were the director of the Arts Council, which is the state agency for developing uh, the arts in Ireland. And I think your talk this evening is really gonna reflect uh, very uh, uh, imaginatively on how we can use art uh, uh, to commemorate. So Orla, welcome and over to you. Thank you very much, Jane. And I suppose before I start, 
I might just talk about the role of the National Archives uh, in terms of this project and what a huge privilege it is for us. Because in many ways, the, the unlocking of these precious records of 700 years um, will complement the existing National Archives and complete the circle. Um, and in a way, it's that completing of the jigsaw, the previous, the, the Public Record Office, and now we have the National um, Archives, 100 years since the foundation of, of the state. So it is that, um, uh, the, the, it, it's the kind of the, the creating a circle um, around how we, how we collect um, and how we cherish our memory institutions, because that's what we see the National Archives as being is, in many ways, a memory institution and what, uh, uh, what Beyond 2022 has is doing, um, and we heard it this afternoon, and then Peter spoke about it this evening, and I think that's what's so significant about this project, is that it is marking a really important moment in the narrative of the state when we reunite those 700 years of lost records um, and, and unlock them uh, so that both ourselves but also future generations can have access to them. And I think it's it's what, that's what I want to talk about this evening really are those powerful moments of commemoration um, in terms of, well, for Beyond 22, it's about the lost records. Um, but when Peter and Kieran and I began to talk about what I might talk about this evening, it was looking at creative responses to commemoration. Um, and uh, I referenced my experience in 2016 when I programmed a commemoration program, uh, Art 2016, which was a response to the events of 1916, but through the lens of contemporary artists. So we agreed really that I might focus this evening on this as a means of illustrating a creative response to commemoration. And hopefully it will allow us to imagine the potential uh, really of beyond 2022 in that context in terms of future conversations, the legacy piece and where we might go beyond 2022. So, Art 2016, we asked artists to return to the history, uh, the official and the unofficial narratives of the events of that time, the source material, the archives, the recollections, both real um, but also imagined, imagined, and respond creatively art and artistically. And that moment really of contemporary commemoration we didn't want it to be a simple reconstruction or representation because as with all history of the the events are revisited and were revisited by artists from a contemporary perspective. So where context, where time, and where distance shape their responses. In designing the 2016 program, a recurring thought for me was of the 50th anniversary commemoration of the Rising in 1966. Then many of the leaders of the Rising were still alive. Uh, we know that the cultural context of the state that they had created was largely intact and unchallenged. But as we know now, that cultural context was already deeply problematic and soon it would be, as we know now, swept away. But on the day, there was no apparent sign of either dissent or difference because in 1966, there was a deep disconnect between the representation of official Ireland and the rapidly emerging realities, not to mention the hidden Ireland whose legacy still haunts us today. So in 2016, we wanted to create a programme that supplemented and if necessary, subverted formal official narratives. We wanted to create platforms for artistic perspectives that though not histories would be invaluable insights. 
they would be insights which by dint of their expression through myriad art forms would bring out issues and address them in ways that written history alone cannot. Because the creative process fundamentally changes everything that it touches. Nothing is the same afterwards. The intertwining of art and history is especially apt uh, when considering 1916, because in terms of the commemoration of 1916, could there possibly have been an Easter rising without the cultural context which suffused so many of its leading protagonists? Art and culture more broadly, including the Irish language and sport, were intimately intertwined in the events of those, uh, in the, the context of those events. There was a moment when artists were immensely important in the national conversation. But that centrality of art in national life with so much else was jettisoned at the foundation of the state. The state that was founded was narrow in focus, its lasting achievement and one which we should not lightly dismiss, particularly I think 100 years later, is a continuous democratic, constitutional and parliamentary tradition. But socially and culturally, the state which came out of the rising was for far too many intensely bleak. So 1966 was an appropriate last salute for those who could st still stand to receive it. But on many levels, it was a whitewash which covered up so many dark areas. Our programme, Art 2016, was intended to be an open call, um, to be an unscripted, unfiltered response from as wide a spectrum of artists, of art forms and of narratives as possible. It was intended at its best to be a series of beautifully honed but awkward questions. And it was hoped that in its execution and performance, it would be a series of encounters which diverse audiences could find cathartic and would, re, uh, would awaken experiences. And the single underlying plan behind Art 2016 was that there was no plan. Um, the open call was on the basis of an open mind. Uh, it was also on the basis of the well-founded hope that artists who had been too long marginalised or instrumentalised or patronised could rise to the challenge of leading us in many different directions. 2016, we wanted to be profoundly different to 1966. Then there was one overarching official narrative, and this is unsustainable um, and unimaginable now in a diverse country with so many histories and so many narratives. Our 2016 ran in parallel uh, with the state's commemoration, but was never appended to it. We asked artists to create work for a specific moment in time. We asked them to evoke and interpret times past. In doing so, in staging their interpretations for us, the audience, the future will be influenced and would be different. The programme that was finally created by artists involved amongst the projects, a contemporary dance performance from choreographer Fergus O'Kahour, uh, who gave us the Casement project, the souvenir shop by visual artist uh, Rita Duffy, a site-specific piece of theatre uh, entitled These Rooms, directed by Louise Lowe, a poet's rising, which was commissioned poems from some of Ireland's finest uh, writers and poets, words of the signatories by traditional uh, musician Lorcan Mahuna, and a collaboration between academics and visual art as artist Jesse Jones in the shadow of the state. And there were many others, but I'm just going to focus on those. In the Casement Project, um, 
His homosexual body was blackguarded, blackguarded in death. The details of the autopsy were used to deploy his corpse for the future destruction of his reputation. In contrast, at his state funeral in Ireland in 1965, his homosexual body was whitewashed in state ceremonies that denied him his identity again. This dance piece sought to reunite Casement, the gay man, with Casement, the diplomat, and Casement, the revolutionary. A poet's rising feature commissioned poems from Paul Muldoon, from Theo Dorgan, from Newlyn Honel, Elaine Hullinan, Thomas McCarthy, and they reflected on the, work, on, the, on the events of 1916 through the poet's lens um, and through the poet's words. Words of the signatories uh, took the poetry of the signatories Pierce, Plunkett and Connolly and created a cycle of songs with, while playing homage to the Pipers Club founder Eamon Kant with music composed by Shan singer Lorcan Machmahuna and Colin McAnumra. And the souvenir shop was a caustic commentary on the materialism that is arguably the most, most durable but not the most attractive feature of our national struggle. A recreated set of Tom Clark's former shop was open for one month off Parnell Street, sell selling memorabilia from around the, uh, the, the rising, such as tea towels of the revolutionaries. We had sig uh, signatory candles. We had butter. We had Carson's marmalade. We had groceries remembering events from the time in a shop that could have been on Moore Street in 1916. So for me, those projects um, and the program as a whole um, was really important in terms of what it did was to remind artists, um, just like historians and researchers, is that they can look at history and create their own response and their own narrative. They too, like the revolutionaries, could be leaders. They have insights which, however discreetly or loudly, deserve to be shared. In our most more disparate society, there's an appetite to look at life in ways that move beyond the obvious. So we must always be aware of, um, of new orthodoxies which replace old ones. Standing apart, the perspective of the artist can be a threatening posture, yet this is what artists do, they stand apart, they reimagine. It, it is the moment of apprehending new perspectives that make them necessary and vital in our world. This is the opportunity that 2016 provided. It was to seek new perspective on what we had become and where we had arrived. So coming back to, to, to beyond 2022 as another expression uh, of commemoration. What it offers us all now is the moment to use the power of technology to unlock archives for the future, allowing us and future generations the opportunity to revisit to refresh and to review our established narratives using new material, new records and new perspectives. As the artist did back in 2016, which for me is the true uh, act of commemoration. I now have a very short, I think it's about three minute um, video just to, to, to bring you through um, examples of some of the projects from our 2016. Francesca. <laughs> We have poets. 
students, we had dramatists, we had teachers, all of those that were the signatories of the proclamation were also artists. So they were looking for an alternative way, an alternative voice and an alternative Ireland. And that's what artists are still doing to this day, 100 years later. They're looking for a different voice, a voice that brings new ideas into the public realm for people to explore and interrogate. because they imagined an Ireland into being. A hundred years on from the rising, it's our turn to kind of figure out a way forward by, I suppose, having a look back and a look around us where we are now and how we got here and where we'd like to go. Necessities, household items, toiletries, cosmetics, and foodstuffs that I have used as a vehicle to explore notions of Irish identity, north and south, notions of history, image, legacy, and narrative. Thank you very, very much, Orla, for that fantastic uh, uh, presentation and reminding us of some of the amazing uh, uh, projects uh, that you uh, sponsored uh, back in 2016. Rita Duffy, who we heard from there at the end, is currently a resident, an artist in residence in the Trinity at Longroom Hub, and she continues to do amazing work in the context of uh, 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 the commemoration of, 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 of 1922. We'll maybe hear from Rita uh, later on. And just to encourage everybody to submit your questions um, in the Q&A uh, feature. As you submit them, do say who you are and where you, where you are. It's lovely to get a sense who's, ask, who's asking the question. Okay, so thank you, Orla. If we could now turn to our next speaker and a big welcome to Professor Guy Biner, who is based at the Department of History at Ben Gurion University, the University of the Negev, and currently holds the Burns Fellowship at Boston uh, College, and Guy's joining us from uh, Boston. Over the course of his very distinguished career, he's held numerous other fellowships, uh, including uh, at Trinity, at Notre Dame, the Central European University, and Oxford. And of course, uh, Guy holds his PhD from uh, UCD. Um, Guy, it's always uh, lovely to have you back in Ireland, uh, even virtually. Uh, your most recent book, which is entitled Forgetful Remembrance, Social Forgetting and 
Vernacular Historiography of a Rebellion in Ulster, which was published in 2018, is an absolutely cracking read um, and obviously relates very much to what you're going to be talking about this evening. So Guy, over to you. Mute myself. Thank you very much. Um, it really is a great honor to be here and I'd like to thank uh, Peter first of all and Jane and the whole staff at the Long Room for inviting me because it really is absolutely great and I should say before I say anything else that I'm in true awe of this project. I've been following the development of Beyond um, 2022 and it's a remarkable project at every level. As an outsider to Ireland I'm looking at it from an international perspective and it's cutting edge in every way in this collaboration between archival retrieval and conservation work and historical research and digital humanities and public history and commemoration and so many other things. For me, what's exciting is also this kind of new appreciation of antiquarianism, of finding documents that were lost that had been retrieved already way in the past. So it really is cutting edge on a global level. I'm not an expert on 1922 in any way. And all I can offer at best now is a very light gloss. And I'll share my screen with you, which I feel slightly uh, uncomfortable with because it doesn't have any of the high-tech wizardry of the kind of things you do at Beyond 2022. It's a simple PowerPoint which seems so early 20, 21st century now. Now, I've called it on purpose, decommemorating, forgetting and recovering. Three terms that I hope by the end of this very short talk, you'll understand what I mean, of the Holocaust of the Four Courts. And I have to add a quick explanation here of my terminology before anybody jumps up in an age where we have to be very careful with our choice of words. I on purpose chose this terminology because I'm referring to Holocaust in its pre-1945 sense. And in fact, there's a, just get this working here, that you can see here the small uh, footnote at the bottom, the etymology of Holocaust takes us back to how this term entered originally into English through medieval French, before that from late Latin, and originally from Greek, where it meant a sacrifice by fire. And this was a term used in various contexts relating to what happened at the Four Courts. So let's look at that very briefly, if we may. I'm starting off with this image from the Irish Times from just over a week after the burning of the, uh, of the Four Courts. And I'm particularly intrigued by the title that was chosen, A Memorial of Destruction. And it's interesting how the Four Courts in itself almost instantly becomes a commemorative event. It becomes a monument, a monument to an archive that's been burnt, to an institution of memory that's been destroyed. And what that means, well, I'll return to that shortly to explain what I think that means or how one way of approaching it. So let's just keep that image in mind. But before that, let's follow this rhetoric of the Holocaust. So a few days after that, the following letter is sent into the Irish Times, a letter to the editor, and includes this text. One may hope that the destruction of the public record office and the four courts may not prove a Holocaust and that some of the records may be salvaged. And it's a remarkably kind of prescient approach from a member of the public um, writing in, adding that he hopes that the provisional government of a newly formed Irish free state is not unmindful of its trust. May I suggest that the government appoint a small committee to locate these hidden treasures and to report as to the best means of rendering them available. And we heard before that, I'm essentially picking up exactly where Peter left and where Ola left in a way um, at, at this moment where the archivist returns the next day uh, where Herbert Wood goes in and begins salvaging material. 
And a few days later, indeed, uh, the provisional government will authorize this as a, as a project which needs to be done. It needs to be stored away on this kind of capsule for nine decades till it's retrieved now and beyond 2022. So in a way, we're looking here at how people envisioned this project already 100 years ago. So this is when the time starts, the, the time lag leading up to the day which we we're at now at the moment. And this, this keeps recurring again and again. If we follow it, a few years later, another letter to the Irish Times. And again, we hear this rhetoric of the Holocaust in reference to it. And in this case, it's a reference to Charles Valencia's, the antiquarian's work, who had retrieved, who had made a copy of the famous down survey map of, of Petty. And he's calling attention to the fact that the, the copy survives in Paris. And this can be reclaimed, which is exactly what Beyond 2022 is doing now, reclaiming from all these repositories through international collaboration. And if we go on another letter from a year later, an article in the Irish Times on ancient records, again, calling upon the government saying, and scholars, before it's too late, we need to do this work. And I've chosen some examples here from the Irish Times, but I can show many other examples from other papers. I don't have time for it. But again, this rhetoric of the Holocaust and the hope that the sacrifice wasn't in vain, that it can be retrieved. And I think um, that's an important work in itself. Now, with that in mind, let's return briefly to the moment itself. To the 30th of June, 1922. This is an iconic photo by W.D. Hogan. Um, and it's interesting how we look at it. Because already at the time, people were thinking, was this an attack on archives? It's interesting to see Churchill's response. So Churchill, who is the Secretary of State for the colonies, is queried at the House of Commons. What is his response? He doesn't even have information on it yet. He's receiving the information live. And he gives the famous quote, which I think Peter's well familiar with, I think it's on your, on your website somewhere as well, a state without archives is better than archives without a state. So the whole question, is this a state essentially beginning without memory? Memory plays in the background here. Archives is a, is, is a metonym for something much larger. Um, but later on, this is interpreted by various historians. Was this a deliberate assault on memory? Perhaps the man who's vocal, who said this most vocally, who made this argument stronger than anybody else, is my former teacher, Tom Garvin. And this is just one of his quotes from an article in the Irish Times. He described it as an attempt to murder the nation as a collective entity with a collective memory. Now, I'd be weary of that. I'd be weary because I don't think that the anti-treaty irregular forces which took over the complex of the four courts were intending in advance to destroy the archives. That wasn't the purpose of the exercise, if you wish, of what was happening there. But memory does play a role in quite surprising way. I think what was playing in their mind was something else. And this relates to a wider theory I have on memory, which I don't have time to expound on. I'll just mention it briefly. I believe that memory of an event believes befo begins before an event. That's interesting. How can a memory of an event begin before an event? Because as an event is happening, we're thinking about previous events. And we're trying to replay them and understand events according to how we see them. And so what they had in their mind, I think, was this, the takeover of the GPO. When they entered, significantly in April, just before Easter, 1922, into the four courts. It was an attempt to replay the takeover of the GPO in April, 1916. It was almost a commemorative event in that sense. In a way, it also backfired. It backfired because it starts another dynamic, which I won't explain too much, but it's just a term which I use in my own work on memory. It's an act of pre-forgetting. Why is it an act of pre-forgetting? Because it's going to be overshadowed by the GPO. It'll never, the GPO and commemoration of 1916 will always take the center stage. I was intrigued by how Orla approached 
the day we're at today by going back to 1916, because we're always under the shadow of 1916 and commemorating 1916, even when we try to remember 1922. So it's been forgotten even as we remember it, which is interesting in its own right. And with that in mind, let's return to this notion of the memorial of destruction and look at it briefly. And I'd like to point out that even if it wasn't intended as such, it became an act, an act of what I would call decommemorating. Decommemorating meaning an act of destruction, an assault on a monument, a destruction of cultural heritage. There was this building of cultural heritage, the four courts itself, even without the archive, a spectacular building of huge cultural importance, and of course the archive in it. And as such, we need to put this in historical context of its time, of destruction of monuments in its day. Think, for example, of the destruction of big houses throughout Ireland during the War of Independence and even more so during the Civil War. The kind of work that Terence Dooley and Maynooth has done fantastic research on the cultural heritage of Ireland was being destroyed. I'm not sure that was the purpose. It wasn't necessarily an attack on cultural heritage. Other things were going on. But that's what was happening as well. It was an act of decommemorating. And as such, we need to put this even in a wider context, in a wider history, and this becomes extremely relevant. I'm warning you now. Because what I'm talking about is a history of decommemorating in Ireland, a history of, of destruction of monuments, deliberate destruction of monuments, which was part of an assault on monuments associated with empire, with union, with loyalism. Think of slightly afterwards, destruction of the Boyne Obelisk, during the Civil War, May 1923. Consider the various equestrian statues and statues to members of the ascendancy and imperial statues. George II uh, attacked on Remembrance Sunday 28, then destroyed in 37. Lord Carlisle in Phoenix Park, Lord Go in Phoenix Park, Lord Gough in Phoenix Park, uh, again attacked twice. And this will go on and on. Perhaps the most incredible of all was the spectacular act of decommemorating Nelson's Pillar in 1966, during a year of commemoration. We heard exactly from Orla about 1966 as this great last call of state commemoration. And then we see this subversive act of destroying a monument while it's happening. So we have this history of decommemorating. And my final comments, because I've been asked to keep very brief here, is let's try and make sense of it just briefly. And this is how I approach in general my studies of history and memory and forgetting. We tend to believe that decommemorating is about forgetting. We have embarrassing moments in the past which are not convenient for us anymore now. We have different figures which are no longer popular. We don't want to see them anymore. It's unpleasant histories for different people that touch on sensibilities that we have at present. And therefore we want to destroy them. And we tend to assume that that's an act of forgetting. But I'm not sure if it is an act of forgetting because essentially it's an act of attempting to suppress a memory. And that instigates something else. That leaves a presence of absence. It leaves something glaring, something missing, something that needs to be filled afterwards through various acts like commemoration, which is what Orla was talking about, I believe. And in fact, it often instigates a reflex of recommemorating, of recovering memory. And that, I suggest, is a way of thinking about the long historical context, which would lead us all the way from 1922 to beyond 2022 at the moment. So that's a brief interpretive gloss. <laughs> Guy, it's much more than that. That was absolutely fantastic. Um, and I've got a, quest a question, for one for you, one for Orla, uh, to kick things off. But again, just simply to invite questions in the Q&A. And if I could ask you to, rather than have a conversation, if we could just keep maybe it focused on 
and questions, just so I get to the important ones, it would be fantastic. So Orla, can I kick off with a question for you? Yeah. Uh, and you, you, obviously you talked so eloquently about the creative ideas that came out of uh, uh, 2016. I'm wondering how you're going to bring some of that to the commemorative programme in the coming years uh, to the National Archives under your directorship and talk a little bit more about what the plans are uh, uh, from the perspective of, of the National Archive. Um, well, I'm only in the job two months, Jane, so I suppose plans in terms of 1921-22 um, are only being discussed now. Um, but there will be a major event in 1922, as well as obviously the unveiling of uh, the Virtual Public Record Office um, with Beyond 2022. We will also have the completion of a new archive repository uh, project on the site of the current National Archives in Bishop Street. So that's a really important moment for us in terms of the legacy piece, in terms of the state recognizing the National Archives as a memory institution um, and recognizing the value and the importance of ensuring that we, uh, we safeguard uh, the records that we have created in the, the last 100 years for future, uh, for future generations. So just to say that um, the capital programme that we, we currently are, are at the process of, are at the point of, of evaluating tenders, that that's a really important moment in terms of where the National Archives is now, but where, where it will be in terms of cherishing and preserving the, the archives of the state for future generations. We're talking about, you know, future access here and unlocking the archives of um, the Public Record Office, but actually it's important that, that, that we continue with that and we have a responsibility as a state to do that. So that's the first major thing. Obviously, um, we have all of the foundation records and the foundation documents and they're hugely important. Um, so we certainly want to do something um, uh, uh, in December 1921 when the treaty was, was, was signed um, and we have the, the, the treaty and the, the, the National Archives and all of the materials and all of the records around the delegation's time in London when they came home and the, the, the debates in the Doyle etc. So there will be something around that. I certainly want to to bring artists into that conversation because in a way they can liberate us out of kind of the weight of history and maybe look at things through a different lens and from a different perspective. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of the wonderful um, paintings that Mick O'Dea did um, uh, on the Black and Tan series a number of years ago and they were extraordinary, they were fantastic. So I would love to, 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 to work with an artist and see how an artist could unlock the archives and look at them in a very different way and look at the records um, that the National Archives has the privilege um, of preserving on behalf of, 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 of us as a, as a state um, and see how they might respond imaginatively and creatively to those records. So certainly from our perspective, Number one, there will be the, the permanent reminder in a way, which will be a new National Archives repository. The second will be something in relation to the treaty. Um, and then in terms of beyond 2022, that in itself is a huge moment. Um, and hopefully the new building will be, um, will be completed by then. So I certainly would like to do something quite, quite extraordinary in terms of the new building and kind of, you know, announcing it um, uh, as, as, as the new um, state repository. So, Thanks, Orla. Uh, there's questions coming up around the 1926 census. Do you want yeah. to give 
a little bit of an update just for a number of well, people. That's a conversation that we that we're having with the um, with uh, the, I mean that there you know we're in discussions with the department at the moment and with the department of Antishak and the CSO in relation to uh, the 1926 census. It cannot be done overnight, obviously, so it'll take a number of years, but it is planned to happen over the next number of years. Great, thank you very much. I'd like to come back to Guy and actually our poll. But while um, Francesca shows us the results of our poll, I'll just say we're trending on Twitter. We're fifth in Ireland, or we were a few minutes ago. So keep on tweeting, folks. Um, uh, have we got the results of the poll, Francesca? Oh, there we are. What an interesting uh, uh, set of results. So there you are, folks. Uh, the question was, in your opinion, which one of the following events in 1922 was the most significant? Uh, so by 34%, it was um, the, uh, oh my goodness, the, the, uh, uh, well, there you go. And where are the four courts is at 22%. Uh, and then the, the death of Michael Collins. So, interesting. Guy, over to you. 1922 was an extraordinary year. Do you want to say a little bit more about it as the year of forgetting, especially uh, uh, given the poll results we've just uh, uh, seen? Well, I, I, I'd, I'd like to, yes, actually, because I've been thinking about this a lot. I, I should say that, again, even before I enter this, just again responding to something that Ola just said, uh, I am in complete of what's happening in Ireland in terms of memory. And I think many people around the world can look at Ireland now as a, as a remarkable place leading the way in memory studies. Uh, the whole world is obsessed with memory, but Ireland is opening whole new approaches, how to approach um, memory. I've just taught a course in Boston College on the decade of centenaries. It's amazing how many things we can look at just by looking at Ireland and it's remarkable scholars of memory and not only historians, that's the interesting thing. Not, I mean, there's great historians like Fergal McGarry, but there's also um, art historians like Emily Mark Fitzgerald or writers, uh, literary scholars like Una Frawley or Emily Pine. So it's exciting to see all this kind of an analytical work happening in Ireland. But one of the things that intrigues me is this, the decade of centenaries, Maybe it's leading the way in the fact that it's describing the Irish Revolution as a process. It takes a whole decade. But within this decade, certain dates stand up more than other dates, stand out more than other dates. And 1922 is intriguing because 1922 almost falls in between the chairs. It's a year where so many crucial things happen and the survey was just a, a brief indication. In many ways, it's a formative. It's also the year when the Irish Free State is formed. It's also the year when partition officially comes into effect. Let's remember that. So partition is there as well. Um, Michael Collins' assassination is it overshadows the forgotten president, right? So, so, so we miss this. Uh, that we miss Arthur Griffith is almost forgotten to history. And in general, if you ask in terms of popular historical consciousness, if you ask people, when did the Irish State begin? Who were the founding figures of the Irish Free State? 1922 is almost forgotten in this, in this sequence of events. 1916 on the one hand, other events, the big conundrum, the big puzzle. Ireland stands almost alone among new nations in the world for not having an independence day. You have St. Patrick's Day, but you don't have an independence day for the state. And because it's shrouded in controversy, in ambiguity, no, people, no two people can agree on a date. And whenever a date is proposed, it always occludes 1922. It always skips 1922. So we have all these different events, and among them, there's the burning of the four courts, which leaves us with this iconic image, perhaps the most striking image graphically of 1922, but it's an image both of memory and of forgetting. Mm -hmm. 
it's an image both of a monument and the destruction of a monument. And in a way, it brings forgetting right into the heart of our discussions of considering the historical importance of 1922. And that's why Beyond 2022 is so significant. Mm. Thanks very much, Guy. Um, I've got a couple of questions here from Peter. Uh, Peter, so Sinead McCool, uh, it would be great if you could trace descendants of Mr. Woods. Have you tried? Uh, ha has there been any attempt to reach out to the Woods family? Um, a number of other members of the uh, Public Record Office staff, their descendants have uh, got in touch with us and that's absolutely wonderful where it's happened. Uh, Mr. McHenry, who is in charge of the Christchurch Thieves calendar, has descendants who were in touch with us and others. So that's wonderful. Mr. Woods himself was a single man. He dies in the 50s. He has a 30-year career after he retires from the Record Office, which is worthy of study and my colleague Karen Wallace has uh, written biographical study of him uh, and uh, so that we won't be able to connect with his particular descendants but that idea of having a connection a personal connection with the descendants of the PRO staff is something I'm very keen on so if there are others listening and they want to get in touch please do there's often family family lore or family um, photographs and so on that are important because uh, just touching on what Guy was saying the destruction of the office was such a, a central event in the, uh, the, the way the records uh, were remembered, that we have forgotten the living history of the record office. I see the other questions about when was the record office founded. The establishment of it in 1867 is so important in terms of Irish historiography, uh, placing um, archives in this country on a proper footing, uh, respect, uh, you know, respective to the uh, English Public Record Office in 1838 and so on and so forth. But that, that's kind of been missing from our historical narratives. So to bring flesh black back onto that uh, narrative is something that I'm very keen on and we're working on across the next two years as well. Thanks, Peter. Before we move to a conversation around virtual reality, and I'm keen to involve Anton, uh, who is in, in our ADAPT Centre, in that conversation, could you maybe say or explain to colleagues in the Zoom room and online how people can get involved with the project? Is there room for, I suppose, volunteers or, or how can the, 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 the power of the crowd, uh, how do you propose to harness that? Yeah, I... We're, we're building slowly outwards. So in phase one, it was all about building the archival collaboration. We're at the point now where we can begin to share our metadata model and our, our um, computer science structures with other research projects. We're all the time building relationships with archives and local historical societies. So at that level, any groups of that kind who would like to be in touch and have something of value they want to contribute, I'd love to hear from them at this point. Uh, I'm not quite yet at the point where we could enable crowdsourcing of information. It's something I'd like to pursue. It needs to be done properly and carefully and so on. It would be great to uh, extend the project so we could be doing that in the year 2022 itself. I have some funding in actually to see can I enable that uh, so that people with very, very um, uh, refined, detailed local knowledge, which is you know part of our wonderful historical tradition here in, on the island, could contribute, for instance, to the knowledge base where we have uh, structured uh, uh, means of uh, describing uh, place and persons across time, but there's a way that local information could then be attached to that and we could get the benefit of, of uh, all that really specialist information that is at the grassroots in our uh, historical culture. So I, I, I want to make that connection and I think there will be capacity to do that. Um, uh, and but in the, in the meantime, I'm, I'm already getting letters during the day since lunchtime, which are just wonderful in terms of the pieces of information that people have found uh, across the Atlantic, 
down in uh, in Tipperary and up in Donegal. That's just from this afternoon's crawl. So please do get in touch. Yeah, well, that's fantastic, Peter. So the question that's for you and for Anton, it's from Laura uh, uh, Aguiar, I think it is, from Prony in Belfast. So great that you're joining us, Laura. Uh, how will the virtual reconstruction be accessed? Um, so uh, how will the VR, uh, the, uh, the virtual reality work? Um, a headset, computer, mobile devices, do, do you want sure. to speak to Will Anton? Because we can bring yeah. actually... Can, is Anton available to us? Anton is a colleague of ours from the ADAPT Centre and an absolute a superstar in terms of uh, virtual reality. So if he can speak, um, we'll, we'll let him join us. Um, I mean, what, I, I, can, I can talk for, for a minute about it. Obviously, for a fully immersive virtual reality experience, you need to have the, uh, the headset. But we are very keen that this is as democratic uh, uh, process as possible, picking up on that term I used in my earlier remarks. So you will be able to access it through your normal web browser or your tablet uh, uh, as well. So there'll be, a, a, at the very least, a twin track approach. That, that is something that we're working on currently, and we hope by September that you'll already be able to experience it. So you won't have to wait two years, actually, to get your taste of doing this uh, directly. I don't know if Anton is there. I saw him pop up. He could. Uh, uh, can you hear me? Yes. Go ahead. Yeah, Perfect. great. Okay, so um, I've recently joined the project um, to work on VR. And um, I'm not sure how many of these things people have tried before, but typically when you have a VR experience, you'll get um, an exhibition where someone's got a large, powerful computer set up with one very expensive VR headset, and you have a queue of people waiting to try it on. And the problem with that is that it just isn't going to happen anymore in a post-COVID world. Um, and there's the other issue was, hey, how can we share this out to as many people, not necessarily locally, but around the world as well? Um, so our solution at the moment is that we're moving to the web. And what we're planning to do for the uh, September uh, events uh, coming up are have a very early interactive version of what you've seen in the video earlier today. Um, and that'll be set within a web browser. So you'll go to the Beyond 2022 webpage and you'll already have a little window of 3D to explore the archives in. <clears throat> and the nice thing about this is there's new technology called WebXR. So that's mixed reality. That's a combination of virtual reality and a similar thing called augmented reality. And the nice thing is it will run as normal 3D in a web browser on your desktop, on your laptop, or indeed on a tablet or a mobile phone as well. As long as it's relatively recent, I think that should be fine. And if you just so happen to have access to a virtual reality headset, there is a button you'll be able to push to jump into VR. So I don't think many people have one of these at home, but some people do, and you'll still be able to have that experience. So that's our plan. Um, in terms of making it COVID compatible, post-COVID compatible and uh, uh, sharing it as broadly as possible. Um, and we're also moving into uh, a more of a sustainable plan for beyond 2022 and the longer term where we're moving to open source, um, uh, open license technology um, that just keeps the project alive for that much longer time frame as well. That's fantastic. And this issue of sustainability of digital resources is maybe something we can turn to uh, in a moment. And I'd love to get uh, uh, Orlet involved with that conversation. But before we do, just while we're in the computer science space, Vinnie Wade is obviously working uh, very closely on this project and a great friend to both of Peter and myself. Vinnie, um, can you tell us a little bit about your virtual keeper um, uh, uh, and, and what you're doing in terms of uh, this virtual environment. So Vinny, I'm, I'm hoping you're there. 
I'm putting you on the spot a little bit. Um, do, do you want to talk Can about- Can you hear me? Yes, please go ahead, Vinny. Sure, yeah. So, so one of the things we're trying to do as well, uh, thanks Anton for, for uh, an excellent explanation of how we're trying to do the virtual reality. But one of the other things we're trying to do is to see can we put in place a uh, digital assistant within the archive, something that you can actually talk to um, and can answer back. So please don't think of it as Alexa. <laughs> it won't turn off the lights <laughs> or turn on the music. But we are uh, experimenting with a uh, being able for, to be able to ask questions about the archive, uh, ask questions about the history around it. And at the moment, myself and Peter are working heavily to try and limit the scope so that we can get something deep. But uh, that's the work we're, we're planning at the moment. Uh, and we're, we're doing a number of, of uh, experiments over the next couple of months to, to, to figure out the exact parts of the archive that would make sense. So to, to, to round off what Anton was saying, so within the the digital space, we have 3D uh, and 2D um, exploration. There'll be uh, an intelligent search to allow people to more easily search the archive. That's done by my colleague. Um, there's the knowledge graph, which was, which was talked about at lunchtime today. And then finally, a, a digital companion with, uh, for, for the archive. Um, so that we're, we're, we're deliberately, the, the reason why it's called Beyond 2022 from the technology side is to try and see how we can actually bring these together to really enliven the archive. Yeah, thanks very, very much, Vinny. I want to come back to something that Anton touched on very briefly was how you sustain digital resources beyond, I don't know, six months, never mind six years, 60 years. How can we guarantee that these amazing digital resources will be available in a hundred years time? So that's part of the conversation. The other part of the conversation is, and it picks up on, or mentioned it very briefly, is we live in a digital world where we, we're not actually thinking about the archive of the future. Um, or if you have a couple of key messages to everybody out there about that archive of the future, what, what, what are they? Can you hear me? Before I start, I want to just I have a quote here and it's from Herbert Wood himself uh, in 1919. The attention of government was frequent, frequently called to the unsatisfactory condition in which the public archives were kept. The state papers of the 16th and 17th century are full of complaints about embezzlement and the loss of state records. Committees were frequently appointed to examine the matter, but their recommendations were not carried out. I think, Jane, that was written in 1919. And I think in 2019, 2020, we have to ensure that, that those criticisms are not leveled against us or future generations. So therefore, I think not only is beyond 2022 a legacy project that must be sustained, so we have to look at long-term sustainability in terms of investment, um, but also we have to look at a digital repository. We have to, to ensure that the National Archives is resourced sufficiently to be able to not only um, uh, preserve and protect the records that are in its possession. I mean, one of the wonderful things about this collaboration between the National Archives and Beyond 2022 is there are records that we have had in our possession that are now being digitized for the first time. We need to ensure that, that we are constantly digitizing 
precious records that need to be um, that need to be preserved into the future. But also we're living in, as you say, a digital age and a digital world. And how do we ensure that the records that are being created now, here we are now having a digital conversation. How do we ensure that conversations like this and the whole of government is now being transacted um, through various different um, online platforms. So how do we ensure that, 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 um, that all of those records that are created digitally are preserved into the future and that's why we need to invest in a digital repository and um, the national archives doesn't have the the, the the capacity currently to be able to um to support digital preservation so those so what are the great legacies that could come out of beyond 2022 from the national archives perspective is that we recognize that investment is needed now to ensure that we in 100 years have have preserved the records of today yeah it's so important, uh, Orla. I know there is the digital repository for Ireland, and I think Natalie Harrower is probably uh, in the Zoom room. I think I saw her uh, uh, earlier. So it's not that we don't have the expertise, but obviously it costs money, and there needs to be an investment uh, in the infrastructure. But there also needs to be that commitment by everybody to recognise that those emails, text messages, are actually historical documents, and uh, you know it's the ephemera of the 21st century. So I think there's a, a range of issues. But as somebody who was very involved in a big digital humanities project, the 1641 Depositions Project, after a decade, the interface that we developed for 1641 is effectively about to die. So, you know, these things really need to be thought out from the beginning. And I don't know, Peter, if you want to get in on this before we move on, because I want to come to Guy then on statues. But do you want to just say something, Peter, as well? I, well, I can, yeah. I mean, that idea that um, what we are producing now just must be available in 21, 22. That has been fundamental to every conversation we've had with, this, with, with government around this, and everybody recognise it as a fundamental thing. The, the, the difficulty is how do we get there? So we have funding now for this phase of the project and we're doing everything we can within our uh, structures to make the appropriate choices now to allow for the future sustaining of the project. And we have an international advisory panel that helps the project make smart decisions at international standards in that area. Just in terms of how we think about it, with the help of the chair of our panel, who's Lorna Hughes, an expert in digital humanities, we've divided the work into three steps. Firstly, there's the technical standards we have to meet. So we're making all the right decisions about preservation quality images and metadata and these technical matters. But in a way, that almost is the easy bit. We should have that documented. The harder things are building the intellectual uh, sustainability, that's building the community of practice, building the collaboration so that as many people are using the resource as possible so that you then have the impetus to uh, create the infrastructure that can sustain it long term. Ultimately, uh, it requires, just like a building requires maintenance, the infrastructure itself requires maintenance if it's digital or if it's real it's the same problem um, but making the good decisions now I think is the correct thing to do and the, just to be absolutely honest always that digital data is a incredibly fragile medium unless you make the right decisions it's not like the parchment Zoe was showing us earlier which although 700 years old can come through a fire that's not what we're dealing with we have to be making very clever informed decisive moves now to protect this for the future. 
I, I, there's a lovely comment here from Paula Griffith who's in, in Mullingar and I just want to read it out because I just think she captures something very important. She said, I visited the archives a couple of years ago, thanks to Tom Quinlan. It was a fantastic experience and Tom of course is with us this evening. To physically hold and see the documents was amazing. To be able to preserve the records and digitise them is a must for future generations. I think there's no substitute for seeing the original and I don't think any of us would ever say that but it's nice to hear you say that. Um, uh, I'd, got, I'd like to shift the conversation a little bit to the whole thing of decommemoration and Guy there's a number of questions for you. Uh, 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 Marie Brady in Dublin, Therese McIntyre in Galway but basically um, could Guy Biner comment on the current events in the US where there seems to be a very heavy dose of decommemorating going on um, uh, but also there was a lot of interest in the decommemoration that went on uh, in, in an Irish context Guy so do you want to just say a little bit more about uh, uh, decommemoration? I'm going to tread very lightly here um, for, because we're dealing with explosive events literally um, <laughs> And, and it's, it's ironic because many topics that I work on have all become relevant in the last few months, different topics. But I was just asked three months ago to write an essay on destruction of statues in Ireland in international context. And then Black Lives Matter suddenly happened and we're in, in that situation of today. And I'm still taking it in, like all of us. We're looking around and it's still a fluid and dynamic situation. So what's happening in the States or in the UK for that matter, and in other places, it's, it's a global, everything is global nowadays. It's interesting though, as a first observation, that there hasn't been a similar spate, at least I'm not aware of it yet in Ireland. So Ireland, which has a long history of destroying statues at the moment, isn't part of the current trend. Ireland is also spared part of the populism of the moment. Ireland is becoming quite an, an interesting place politically. But if we look at what's happening in the States, again, treading very lightly as an historian who prefers to deal with the past and with the present and to have some perspective. Um, the interesting point is this, statues, have a biography. Statues, even though they seem that they're made in stone, attitudes towards them have changed throughout time. What's interesting is the attitudes towards them. There's no guarantee that they should stay as they are in their place. They can become offensive, they can be problematic, there's nothing preventing us from moving them, for setting up new statues which are more uh, adapt to our times. That's, that's completely normal. The more interesting case, of course, is this cleaning up and removing of history, of destruction of, of parts which are part of history. So the question is, how do we keep things which are unpleasant, which are uncomfortable? How do we retrain them and keep a, how do we retain them and still maintain a critical edge so we can look at them, maybe in a removed context, maybe remove them. I and mean, we've gone through this before, the destruction, the, the destruction of monuments that followed the fall of the Iron Curtain and the fall of communism. My, my generation saw that very, very clearly. Um, all the Lenin statues, this Lenin pod, it's still going on in Eastern Europe in various contexts. So what do you do with it? Do you do, for example, what they did in Hungary, in Budapest, and a couple of other places? Do you make a park outside? You can go and observe these statues. In Hungary, that became kind of a, a communist Disneyland. It became a piece of kitsch. It didn't quite work in that sense. Can you still go there and see the statues with a caveat, which explains this is insensitive, this is problematic, this is a bit of our history, exactly this insensitivity, and coming to terms with it. It's part of our art history. So that's a debate we need to really have at the moment. It's a critical one. It's about conserving while recontextualizing and also replacing part of our imagery, which is part of growing up. I think Orla showed us very clearly in our presentation, the way we commemorated 50 years ago is different from the way we commemorate today. We're creating new monuments which are not even set in stone today. And that's what's so exciting. 
Yeah, thank you very much, Guy. Um, I've got a couple of questions here from for Peter. Uh, so Peter, our colleague in the History Department, Carol Holohan, uh, congratulations on the project and, and the talks this evening. Uh, so her question is, uh, uh, do we know what kind of documents were regularly called up in the search room? Uh, who was using it? So in other words, have we got any sense of the, the history of the search room? Yeah. Um, the well, actually, Kieran Wallace, um, my colleague, uh, has made it a remarkable discovery within the last six months about the uh, organisation of the archive. So that's one thing. That's not quite what Carol has asked, but I just wanted to mention it. We had Woods Guide, which or Orla uh, mentioned and I've been talking about, but uh, in collaboration with Tom Quinlan and other colleagues from National Archives Ireland, we're analysing what would be called the increment books, which tell us exactly and the transfer books, exactly how the materials were transferred into the archive from the 1860s onwards. And we have extraordinary detail down to shelf and bundle level about what was actually contained within each uh, bay of the building. So that's one thing. But the majority of uh, things that the clerks in the record office were asked to copy out would have been to do with land. That would be the, the, uh, the, the first thing that uh, land and testamentary records, I think. But we have um, much more to do in that regard uh, in terms of the that sort of living history element of the PRO that I'd like to uncover. And Peter, there's another question uh, very much uh, 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 for you, although again, Orla may be able to help here. It says, is it possible to put a number or percentage on the amounts of documents which have been completely lost in the process of being recovered and those still yet to be sorted. So um, uh, John Phelan, uh, Ryan Mulvaney and others are, are interested yeah. in more about that. Yeah, the percentage question is very difficult. Um, I would answer in the most general way, I could say that uh, we, uh, there are some collections that were so intensively investigated from the 17th century onwards, the type of antiquarian work that Guy refers to, and then extraordinary, uh, uh, intensive phase of copying records in the 19th century that we can be confident of recovering up to 80% of certain series of state papers and chancery and exchequer and so on. So there are certain series that are very perceived as significant within the history of the state where we're, we're retrieving really, really rich. That is not the majority of the archive though. So there'll be a significant portion of the archive, maybe up to 70%, where all we're looking at is some documents from those series that are destroyed. So overall, it's very difficult to give a total percentage. I would say in some cases, we're looking at really, really rich uh, recovery elsewhere, and much more uh, piecemeal. I would say that in, in all of these cases, when you find anything, when the, when the baseline is everything is destroyed, if you find anything, uh, that's good news and should be celebrated. And the, the problem, and I've been saying this for years, the problem is not one of a paucity of records, it's the problem of scale. We have so much that we could encompass, that we have to make decisions now about what we will do in this phase of the project and then how that can be uh, extended uh, into the future. I hope that's not too um, evasive answer, but it's the best answer I can give. Yeah, and, and, and Orla, would you want to come in there at all? Uh, it, it's probably not fair to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> and you can say no. <laughs> no, I mean, I, th I think uh, Peter's covered it, but I do think what is really important, and it's just, I suppose, the how the value that we place on the records and when we go back to 1922 like one of the first tasks 
that the um, that the staff and the public record office did was to start working tirelessly, not only to, 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 to gather up what they could on the site, but also to start acquiring copies or abstracts of the original documents that were destroyed straight away. So in many ways, they started the work that Peter and his team and our teams across the various different um, national archives are, are hopefully bringing to some percentage completion uh, in 2022. Thanks, Orla. I, I'm going to see if Rita Duffy might just join the conversation very quickly. Obviously, you showed some of her work in your video, but you also had this wonderful expression, uh, artists liberating us from the weight of history. Um, and I just thought that was such a powerful phrase. And Rita, as somebody who I know is thinking about these issues, and I am putting you on the spot here, I hope to goodness uh, uh, you're still in the Zoom room. Would you like to just respond to that? Thank you, Rita, it's great you're there, from your perspective as an artist who is intensely interested in these conversations. Well, I think, you know, history and, and all that we have lived informs art. But more than anything, I think that the question of what do we do with these monuments and statues that are being taken down? I think there is a moment for artistic intervention. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm reminded of a phenomenal statue uh, representing the man who was responsible for the, the land clearances in the Highlands of Scotland and everybody wanted it removed, taken down, um, and an artist put suitcases at his feet, which basically um, was, his, was his moment to depart himself. But it stands there recognising what people experienced, but in an ironic and very clever way um, represented what people actually feel today about that history. And I think that's much better than discarding these things because the chances are they'll end up kind of reinvented in some neo-fascist backyard. Um, and I would much rather see them remain, but have interventions that tell us about and give us an opportunity to learn our history and to, to share the experiences that we've been through in a more um, healing and restorative way. Um, I think the art, it's, it's very exciting what's happening in the, the archive in Dublin. I was involved in the rebuilding of the, the new public records office in Northern Ireland and it was fascinating some of the material that is held there and it would be wonderful and a real challenge to some of the mythology that separates us in the north um, to have some of that interesting stuff brought more into the public arena. Mm. Thank you very much, Rita. And, and obviously you've got a lot more to say, but we're sort of really running out of time here. Uh, I want to just give our three panelists the final word, um, even though the questions are coming in just thick and thin. Um, uh, 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 maybe starting with you, Guy, is there, if you want the audience to, to leave this evening with one key message, what would that be? Well, well I haven't thought of, of one key message, but I'll just point two matters of context of what I've just heard now in the debate, if I meant for the questions. The first one is that we should never lose contact, as Jane said before, with materiality of the actual object. We've been through this before, when the Library of Congress in America decided it doesn't need a newspaper archive because everything has moved to microfilm. They went and pulped the whole newspaper archive and we, lo we lost the originals. And then technology changes and there's no substitute for the original. So you've got to remember this kind of balance between conservation and digitalization, which will always change all the time. And the other point is, 
how poignant this project is, how fast seen it is, because if something happened now with the coronavirus, which nobody expected, is we've learned the importance of also being, of needing to, of being able to access things from afar. We need this virtual access. We're in lockdown at home and we need to be able to access an archive, not just historians, the public. It has to be democratized exactly the way Peter talked about it. And I think this notion of democratization of memory and of history is the point we need to take out of this. Yeah, thank you very much, Guy. Orla. Um, I, I think for me, really, um, what Beyond 2022 very clearly demonstrates is how that collective coming together. Um, so, you know, Trinity and all of the, ar the, the archives um, across the different jurisdictions, as well as the Irish Manuscripts Commission, etc., and Trinity's own library, that that sense of collaboration is what's really important in terms of ensuring future access to archives in a way that we all need to collaborate and work together, that no one institution has natural uh, right to access materials that it is and records. It is about sharing and collaborating and working together. And I think that what Beyond 2022 really, really shows um, is that we are, you know, that, and the legacy of it really will be is how do we continue to work together to ensure that, um, that it continues to be a dynamic um, resource rather than something that is created virtually and then just lives on a, on a digital platform, that it continues to be a dynamic resource and that can only happen through continued collaboration between the different players and hopefully that will continue. Thank you very much Orla and last but not least Peter. Thank you, uh, well really I just want to say two things. Firstly, thank you so much to the uh, speakers to Guy and Orla to, for the very nice things you're saying about Beyond 2022 and that reflects on the entire team most of whom you haven't in fact seen today even though we had six of them at the research showcase there's an even bigger team and they've been absolutely incredible across the last three months in particular. The se uh, second thing is just next time we'll have a big event we will be in Belfast and I think that's very important in Prony at the end of September so watch out for that but I can't allow the evening to end Jane you mentioned that this is your last event and just on behalf of colleagues and friends in the hub in arts and humanities and across college actually I just wanted to thank you for your work as director of the Long Room Hub across those five years it's gone by both incredibly fast and and also, I can't believe it's coming to an end. I mean, uh, you say every, every time I hear you speak, you always say the Hub does three things. Well, you've done them incredibly well for those five years. So thank you. We're delighted that Eve Patton will be taking over from tomorrow, uh, but she has a hard, hard act to follow. And we wish you enormous success with your Ford Lectures and Oxford Fingers series. So thank you very much, Jane. Thank you very much, Peter. Um, and I'm Thank you very much. I really, really, really appreciate it. This is an emotional evening for me. It's been the best job in Trinity. I've absolutely loved every minute of it. And I was about to say, I have no announcements because this is the last event of our academic year. Uh, we'll reconvene in September for, again, a hugely exciting uh, programme. We've been operating virtually since the 12th of March um, and it's been a, a learning curve for us all. Um, and just P Peter said a moment ago, you know, a it takes a village to uh, run an operation like beyond 20, uh, 22. It's the same with the Trinity Long Room Hub. Um, I want to just thank a few people before we say goodnight to each other. Uh, especially that amazing team uh, in the hub. Um, I couldn't have done it without them. They're the A-team, Katrina, Emily, Giovanna, 
and Aoife and Francesca, especially when it comes to doing uh, these digital events. I mean, they're absolutely awesome. They're so professional. I'm going to miss them uh, hugely. So a big, big thank you uh, uh, to the team. I want to thank our audiences tonight, today, uh, 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 over the years, amazing interactions, amazing questions. And I hope you can see the Q&A just full of uh, uh, really wonderful observations. And obviously people have really enjoyed this evening and that is fantastic. So uh, a big thank you to our audience, our supporters, our funders. We couldn't do it without you. This is such an important project. Obviously uh, 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 your support means everything uh, uh, to us. And I just, the final word though, must be to our panelists this evening. It has been a treat. Um, and I, on all of our behalves, I'd like to thank uh, Peter Crooks. I'd like to thank uh, uh, Orla McBride. And I'd like to thank Guy Biner. You guys have been absolutely uh, awesome. So we're gonna thank you in the customary way. I'm here on my porch in Northwest Donegal, but if you're sitting in your kitchens, your living rooms, your bedrooms, your uh, uh, studies, if you could just put your hands together and uh, uh, congratulate our panelists. So thank you. So good night folks and stay well. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history to of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.